Hi, this is Repatterning. I'm Kata. And I'm Tom. And today's talk is with Wiem Et Tamemi, an Egyptian writer living in Berlin. Wiem writes, translates, edits, teaches yoga, cooks, gives body work, talks and listens, sleeps and wakes and dreams, moves a lot. She has been semi-nomadic for the past 18 years, and that is part of what we'll be talking about. We'll also be talking about revolution and aftermath, uh, disaster as a catalyst, ways of living, mediated truth and literary truth, and lying down, and lots more. Hi, Tom. <laughs> Hi, Riem. Hi, Kata. Welcome. Thank you. We're happy you're here. Yeah, I'm happy to be here, too. Um, well, maybe we revealed right away that we had previous conversations because we have known each other already for mm -hmm. some time. And um, when I was uh, mentioning this idea to you first about this uh, conversation, I mentioned that uh, our starting point was how for a lot of us this pandemic um, kind of threw up our lives and made us uh, have to change our lives and expectations and how we think about our everydays. And um, you mentioned something interesting or what I found interesting that um, you for you, maybe this pandemic wasn't such an outstanding example of this because you have been through a lot of these situations. Um, so I don't know if you want to tell us about any of those other situations where you felt this way. So I would. I, I was also thinking actually that uh, uh, Tom, just now when you were introducing this uh, this project, mm -hmm. uh, you you said something really interesting, and I I wondered if I could bounce that back to you first. Sure. <laughs> you were saying that for you the pandemic there was so much restriction in some ways, but in other ways um, it really forced certain things into being. And I was wondering how that you know what 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 you meant by that. Um. Well, I suppose the most immediately kind of practical way that I meant it was that there were a lot of people that we know who are trying to, you know, uh, push their various artistic and creative projects forward in the world. And they had to sort of suddenly figure out some new way to deal with this new reality. Um, and it was interesting to watch people struggle with that in a way, because, you know, for example, uh, we were going to be, we were planning to play some concerts and suddenly all concerts were cancelled and we ended up doing a sort of a, like a collaborative work together with a, a Spanish artist where we were ended up doing like a soundtrack to a video uh, that she was doing that was part of a series of uh, this whole larger body of work that she was working on where, you know, a month previously, I don't think we would have imagined doing that kind of work. But then suddenly a month later, that's what we were doing. 
And this kind of sudden process of just being in a totally different world, sort of not exactly overnight, but pretty close to overnight, um, is, I suppose, part of what I meant that the pandemic was both a restriction and also a kind of a a catalyst, I suppose. Um, yeah, I don't know. Does it make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Can you give examples of like how, how else that translated for you over the past, both of you, like over the past couple of years in terms of how it changed your work? I mean, you just mentioned that you did an online concert for... Um, All right, for yeah. people in 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 Shanghai who are in lockdown, I I, yeah. I don't I don't even understand what that <laughs> what that is or how that works. Could you like tell me a bit about the trajectory of the last two years for you or whatever like highlights of of in terms of this kind of transformation or or, or turning towards new new modes of of work or creativity or or living that. That have come up in your wow, lives. I mean, where to start? <laughs> I, I, I like how you've already uh, <laughs> taken this and turned it, and now suddenly you're interviewing us. But uh, you know, that's okay. <laughs> that's part of my strategy <laughs> <laughs> to say as little as possible in the next hour. <laughs> mm, interesting. <laughs> All right. Then. I think it's your turn to take this one now. Then. Well, I don't know if what comes to my mind right away is not so much the what how this affected our artistic life, uh, but how the online presence started to get a different kind of um, importance during the pandemic, like suddenly everything went online, people started to do online events, online concerts, online birthday parties, I don't know, all <laughs> kinds of things. Mm-hmm. And I I enjoyed seeing how first that was this sudden revelation that ah oh, we can't see each other but we can we can still like gather online and still you know like do things and meet and exchange and then when the phase ca- came that people started to get tired that like I can't do any more online things mm. I can't do any more I can't look at the screen anymore I want to see my friends in person yeah. I want to see I want to touch I want to hug And now, um, now we have now we have it as an option. Now we have it as an as an extension of of our possibilities. And so now, when there is an event that can take place in person, then they maybe also do some of the parts of the event online, because actually it does make it more accessible for a lot of people. And um, it's possible. It's it's there as an option. And I, I, this is, for example, something that I think it, it also comes to the, it enforced for other things to happen. And it's also important. We have a friend who is bedbound, sick at home. Mm. And because of the pandemic, she had access to much more things than she did before Mm -hmm. because people suddenly did things online. Previously, people didn't think about, you know, when organizing events, didn't think about the people who are, always at home and can't leave. Mm. Mm. And so I feel like um, the pandemic also brought things that I don't know how much brought awareness, but certainly brought changes that um, have positive and negative sides, but the positive side we can also carry on. Like the negative was what we were 
forced to use those, uh, have those changes because we didn't have another choice, but now we can carry it on as a choice. Mm. And another uh, um, example that I really like about this is the question of consent or the question of boundaries and expressing our boundaries. So my favorite moment in the pandemic was when we meet each other and say, do you hug these days? <laughs> I think it's beautiful. I think it's beautiful to, to ask each other, do we want to hug? Mm. And to say, uh, no, I prefer not. Mm. Or yes, please. Mm. You know that it's a choice. And we know we're aware that it's a choice. Well, there are two questions that I just scribbled down as you were talking. One was um, about touch. And one was about um, when you mentioned that there's now this kind of hybrid, quote unquote hybrid, um, you know, dimension to a lot of events now that, you know, some events are taking place in person. But now even, you know, there's also this online component. I was wondering <clears throat> what you saw as like being lost and what you saw as being or experiences being gained, like when there's this online component, even when we're meeting in person, like uh, you already mentioned that there's this uh, this example of someone who's, you know, people who are housebound. Um, are there other things that you feel are, don't worry, I will also answer questions <laughs> at some point and talk about myself. But I don't know, I'm just, uh, yeah, those are the two things that sort of came up for me, like, uh, yeah. Uh, Sorry, so which two things? Uh, well, first, this this idea of, of touch, which you mm. touched upon now, like, uh, how has that been transformed for you guys in your lives? Um, and the other thing is this... Um, Yeah, when when this online component has has continued even in in person events, mm. how do you experience that, and do you feel it as a you know what's been gained and what's been lost when there's this, mm. when there's when we're still online even when we're on in person? I think we're kind of uh, far enough into the pandemic that it's starting to have its own eras now, mm. and so when I think of uh, you know the the panic stations point of like March, April 2020, mm. it is very much something that kind of feels like uh, the Zoom party era of the pandemic, which of <laughs> course is, a, yeah. is, is <laughs> the perspective of somebody who's kind of like, I mean, you know, like just to get the obvious things out of the way, like it's a very much Eurocentric uh, kind of online connected privileged perspective type of a thing to have but uh nonetheless i think that it was in its own way a kind of a a, a cultural moment that you know stuff happened on this one application that we all suddenly became familiar with and then over time there has kind of uh, it has you know broadened in weird ways like i remember that It was a few months into the pandemic that there was this whole kind of craze for people buying these stocks, which was this weird online moment that certain, I don't know, some people were into, uh, or for buying and selling crypto stuff. And then there was all this NFT craziness that started to happen. And that in its own way, at least in how I thought about it, I thought of it as ultimately a cultural kind of... Um, Yeah, like like a like a something that was culturally connected to the ultimate 
underlying impetus of the fact that everybody was still kind of stuck at home hmm. uh, and had gotten bored with Zoom parties and had now started, I don't know, selling each other JPEGs or whatever. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that was for one of the things. And then I don't remember what the other question was. Oh, it was about touch. Hmm. Um, I don't know. You, you can talk about touch. <laughs> yeah, yeah actually how was it uh, yeah. for you how much was it online and how much uh, could you how much did you have to get into the online uh, world or you try to enforce yourself into live mm. presence for me it was actually more what you said the second part that I I feel like I became much more present of 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 my immediate surroundings because there was at the beginning at least kind of there was all this stuff about public transport and and you know a bit like this kind of kind of lockdown but in Berlin we were still mm. able to leave our homes thankfully i started taking walks like long long walks and i would just go as far as i could walk you know for two hours or longer and i would just um mm. Sometimes I would do it while speaking to friends on the fo far away friends on the phone and just walk and walk and walk and um, started to explore the city in a different way. And it felt like a new city, actually. And that was something that I found so beautiful at the beginning that there was this sense of newness, even mm, in this mm -hmm. very familiar, you know, this very familiar world and context. It had been everything had shifted, as you as you said, somehow been turned inside out. Mm. And for me, I love newness <laughs> in a way. I mean, of course, mm -hmm. I, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I want to preface this all by saying that, of course, I there's been Im immense suffering in the last two years. And I don't want to, um, you know, I don't want to make light of that in any way by sharing my own experience of it. Um. But yeah, I, I, for me, I experienced it in a very specific way, which had to do with a feeling of coming back to myself and coming back to what was really important. Mm. And this kind of falling away of all this excess and of all these superfluous things that I had somehow surrounded myself with and created and realizing that there was so much of that didn't matter and was not important to chase after. Mm. And that was really helped by the fact that there was just so much had closed, for example, like there was no more consumption. Well, not no more consumption. There was still a lot of, as you mentioned, online consumption and on all sorts of things. But for instance, in the last few years, I've been more and more shifting away from city life and living uh, in the last couple of years before the pandemic. I, I was living in a you know, I was living on an island for a year in Turkey. I was living in Wisconsin for half a year uh, on a farm. I was living in the mountains in Greece. Um, so, so in a permaculture community. So I, I think more and more I was shifting away from city life. And then when the pandemic hit, um, the city itself became something different for me. It became less urban in a way, hmm. uh, a lot of the things that I find um, repellent or or that are kind of driving me out of, of of cities now, like the overconsumption, like the fact this kind of blitz and glitz and like this kind of blare of constant stimulation was really faded away in, 
especially in that first lockdown. And for me, mm. there was something very magical about that. Mm-hmm. I felt that Berlin slowed down a lot. I loved just going to the parks and sitting like, you know, the, the sun. I don't know if you remember, but but that was such an interesting moment because there was this winter and then actually the first lockdown was in the spring and the sun mm. came out almost as soon as the lockdown started. So mm. people could just, you know, as people were not able to do in other cities, actually, but in Berlin, this was still allowed. So people would just go to the parks and mm. just sit in the sun. Mm-hmm. And I loved seeing that. I loved just sitting there. Even if we were, you know, people were sitting apart from each other, of course, maintaining the distance. Um, I felt there was a sense of togetherness. Mm-hmm. And there was also this sense of like presence and um living life simply again. I don't want to say it in a naive way, but I did feel that there was this window at the beginning where yeah, there people... there was certainly this kind of moment of what felt like uh, a larger solidarity. Yeah. I, I remember kind of seeing the, the videos of like uh, Italians yeah. in lockdown singing to each other from their balconies and stuff mm. like this and kind of on the one hand thinking, wow, this is just totally amazing. And then at the same time thinking, this cannot last. Mm-hmm. Like, th- yeah. this, this is a moment. Mm. It's not. It's not a, a new reality. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, it was it was nice while it lasted. <laughs> yeah. Well, this is so interesting. It's interesting that you bring that up because I, I'm so interested in those momentary. How do I call, I mean, those utopian moments, let's say, because Mm. it's something that I feel like I've thought a lot about and written a lot about in the last um, 12 years, maybe 11 years, um, because I was, in 2011, there was an uprising in Egypt, and I was, you know, like, you know, like hundreds of thousands of people, I was part of that, and Sorry, are we letting the cat out of the bag here? <laughs> no, <laughs> no. It's you just, were in Egypt in 2011. Yeah, I was no. in Egypt. I my I'm Egyptian, um, and I, um, I mean, I've I grew up and lived in many places, but it's uh, you know it's um, it's where my family is from, and it's uh, it's uh, it's my nemesis <laughs> also in a way that place and that yeah and. Um, and um yeah and it's a place that i've uh, i've lived in at different parts of my life and and i was there also during the the first 4 years of the uprising um mm. and um yeah so this idea of um what you said about solidarity and um and utopia that inevitably doesn't last is such a is such an exciting one for me and something i'm constantly thinking and wondering about and um, actually, also more recently, I was in Mexico in um, in 2017 when there was um, a massive earthquake in September 2017, where there were two massive earthquakes, actually. And it was so interesting in the wake of these earthquakes to see elements that I had seen before in in times of political action, in, in in uprisings in Egypt, in Turkey, when I lived there later, and also I was volunteering on Lesbos for some time during the, the first big mm. influx of refugees in 2015, 2016. So, so 
um, just to relate it to what you were saying, Tom, like um, this idea of of what happens when the world stops. Mm. I think that. Um, so I was writing a piece about this Mexico earthquake and my my kind of overarching question in this in this long essay was um, about the fact that in the wake of this earthquake, of course, there was massive suffering, but there was also incredible, this incredible coming together in a way that people don't seem to be able to do in this day and age in, in, in everyday life. Mm. Like there was just when the system sort of completely collapsed in the wake of the earthquake, people had to get to know each other. Neighbors were the ones who were the first responders. They were the ones who were setting up the community kitchens. They were the ones who were um, who were even pulling people out from the rubble and doing everything, basically, because the authorities cannot react mm, mm. fast enough to a, to a disaster that huge. It's the people who react and the people who who immediately, spontaneously, totally organically come together and create this completely different world. Mm. And it's just fascinating to see. And it, I was amazed to see it not just in, in a moment of, of, of revolution, of like, but in a moment of a natural disaster, which should be the mm. biggest tragedy and is a, an immense tragedy, but it actually creates this window where people can create a, a different society actually for mm. this moment again mm, mm, this mm. utopia in a way not to again not to not to make light of the suffering but there was this 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 light on the other side of that that darkness of of possibility of yeah, like a completely it, different way of of being and being together yeah. that it's it's not like as if that it is a utopia itself but rather that it sort of implies the possibility of some other exactly. thing that we're only just kind of not quite able to grasp. Exactly. Or, yeah, yeah, and yeah. that's actually, there's this uh, very beautiful book by Rebecca Solnit called, um, oh, it has a t terrible title, but um, it, it has a very sensationalist title, I think. It's called A Paradise Built in Hell. But the subtitle is um, The Extraordinary Communities That uh, Arise in Disaster. And mm. she does these, uh, she basically wrote this book about with case studies from disasters, you know, mm. over the, you know, I think, I think it's throughout the 20th century and 21st century in different places in the world and how this utopian moment and this coming together and solidarity is created um, in the immediate aftermath of disaster. And that it, it, and she says what you just said, actually, she says that utopia is merely, hmm. I'm going to misquote this. This is not a direct <laughs> quote, but she says that something like, speaking of repatterning, she says, um, utopia is merely an ephemeral shape or pattern that we can use to to explore the real possibilities that that are that are you know within our reach or something like that. That she she basically says it's not something that we can um, hold on to and that we can make stable, but it. It's it, it shows it's a kind of a little window that shows us what we are capable of and what we are actually lacking in our everyday life and how it can be different. Mm, mm. Mm. There's a uh, uh, some people that I know who have been uh, working as a result of the kind of uh, well volunteering because of the situation in Ukraine mm. at the moment, um, and I think that. For some of the people involved in this, it has also been a, I suppose, a somewhat 
comparable kind of a moment mm. that uh, out of this kind of insane, tragic situation that suddenly they're kind of uh, finding ways to pull things together in, you know, in ways that seem impossible, I suppose. What do you mean by pull things together? Well, sometimes quite literally, like mm. that there would be, you know, a word would go out that a train is going to be arriving with mm. 500 people on it mm. that have no idea what their future holds yeah. and they need a place to stay tonight. Mm. Like, and that, what do you do in this situation? You know, like uh, that people are grappling with those kinds of questions. You know? mm. So, And Rebecca Solnit actually talks about... And this is something I witnessed in Mexico and that I also witnessed in, in Egypt and in Turkey and in Greece. This, um, this extraordinary resourcefulness and creativity that, that just spontaneously arises actually in, you know, in times when people have to, have to do something, mm. they can and they do and, mm. they, and they do it together, total strangers. Yeah. And it's so interesting how how creative we can be and how we and and yeah i mean there's this narrative that um you know that if certain things fail you know and if in you know if this you know, well i don't it sounds very dramatic if the system fails but that there's going to be chaos and anarchy but but it's possible that um that the opposite happens actually that people self-organize that people are capable mm. of of creating a different reality and yeah. that we really are hungry for that i mean just to, yeah. to to come back to something you mentioned that that people um again not to belittle the tragedy and the enormity of it but 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 we are so hungry for purpose and meaning and connection and mm -hmm. that this is something rebecca solda talks about and again i saw and felt and experienced in all these places that we when we have a time when when we can really be together and do something super immediate urgent and meaningful it's so filling you know that mm, in a mm. way that it also belies how how much we we want that need that and how somehow our lives i think in general in this capitalist urban <laughs> in you know context that we live is lacks that actually uh, in a lot of cases you know that we mm. we don't necessarily have these spaces for for really pouring our energy into into being together and into you know being so meaningful in each other's lives as we do in moments of crisis mm. was it a similar feeling in uh, the situation in Egypt in 2011 And if so, like, how long did it take for that to to disappear? Oh, Tom, <laughs> <laughs> that's a big question. And I don't know how much I'm able to uh, emotionally well, yeah, answer that, know. but I, I will try to give you, you a short you, answer. <laughs> you, you, you take it as you want. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so the question was, um, yeah, I mean, in, in Egypt, It was pure magic because just by being there out in the streets in the square, you felt like everyone around you was family, even though everyone, you know, everyone around you means hundreds of thousands of people, mm, mm. hundreds of thousands of strangers. 
but you just began conversations in mid-sentence. Mm. You know, you mm. you you talked like you know each other, that you that you know that you are you totally belong together, that you are completely safe in this enormous, you know, this enormous embrace of of people who are who are you actually it, it's it's crazy and it's impossible to put into words but there's a moment when we transcend ourselves and become this collective body i think and that was one of those moments that we that you can really go beyond all judgments and all thoughts about and all kind of barriers that be between me another a third you know someone i don't know and don't trust and don't feel safe with and you know oh i don't know they're dressed in a or they're talking in a or they're blah blah or they belong to a different class or gen whatever it is you know i think there's just in all of our societies there's just so much segregation and categorization that we're constantly doing And there was this moment when all of that was crushed, you know, and that we were just like swept together in this enormous tidal wave of togetherness, of oneness, you know. And it was just, um, it was incredible to just, you know, the same person that just the day before you might have, you know, walked past in the street and made all sorts of judgments about and not been able to ever have a conversation because you belong in different worlds where suddenly you're literally a, a sibling you know mm. um and and there was that assumption that you were totally in this together just because of being there you know that you shared the same not even just shared the same values that just that doesn't even come close to to what it was it was shared the same vision of life shared the same dream shared the same wanting you know the same longing for a different world and and that you you all had the Yeah, I mean, that was the the kind of illusion of that moment, but also the beauty and magic and reality of that moment, because it wasn't just an illusion. It was a moment where we could get beyond all those ridiculous things that we all have between us every day of our lives and and know that we're one. But <laughs> here comes the answer to the second part of your question. At some point, I think that we were really gathered and came together because we knew very clearly what we were saying no to. And there was just this enormous breath of refusal, you know, collective breath. But then afterwards, we didn't know what we were saying yes to, you know, we didn't know what we actually wanted as an alternative to what we were rejecting and, and seeking to mm. to. Um, Yeah, and 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 so when when Mubarak fell, and when <clears throat> when it looked like there's a possibility that the old regime could actually be a thing of the past, or that we could, you know, some something could change, then it became. So, what do we want it to be, actually? And, and then it gets into the details of how we envision the world. And then it gets into fragmentation in a way. But of course, this fragmentation was also completely manipulated and completely um, engineered. I mean, that's the really sad part to see that um, 
I mean, in a way, it's inevitable, as we were talking about, this utopia can't last. But in another way, it also um, was created that um, and you could see it very, very clearly how in a very short span of time, people were brought against each other and turned against each other by the media and by people who remained in power and obviously never left. And um, and it's a very easy way to to break people apart and to break the power of something like that. And it's so interesting because this kind of polarization is happening everywhere in the world. In, it's amazing. You know, I, I saw it again in Turkey, you know, a few years later when I moved there, I saw it, you know, to really I saw it happening like right in front of me that people who are living together, you know, with all their differences, you know, in more or less, I mean, of course, there is some some spaces of unease, but more or less, you know, in a in a in a peaceful coexistence became extremely polarized. I, I have, you know, where is it coming from, actually? Why is it? Um, well, I tend to blame Mark Zuckerberg, but <laughs> <laughs> yes, <laughs> lots of people but tend to blame. Maybe it's maybe it's not quite so straightforward mm. as that. Mm. <laughs> but that probably has a lot to do. I mean, not Mark himself <laughs> sitting in his, but um, I mean, social media. I mean, people have said that, of course, uh, yeah, that that it's a very easy way to um, to create certain waves of. Uh, you know, waves of thought, I guess, or, or f yeah, but I don't know if I want to go down that road. It seems like a, quite a depressing uh, line of uh, thought. Yeah, mm. I actually, I was thinking about walking back this road a little bit, back mm. to the fork we left before and take mm. the other turn for mm. a moment. <laughs> um, I wanted to go back to you talking about people coming together in the moment of uh, disasters and um, this bringing together uh, their forces and creativity. And you mentioned urban life, you mentioned disasters, you mentioned um, political circumstances. And you also mentioned... Uh, having experience in living on the land, living on a farm. Um, and I wonder if you experienced some of these things um, in a non-disastrous situation, mm -hmm. but um, in a different setup where maybe some of these elements were not part of the constellation and yet it allowed for this kind of coming together, this uh, sort of giving meaning uh to us by yeah like doing something together that has a meaning mm. um did i make myself clear yeah of course <laughs> of course of course of course yeah i mean yeah i feel like it's something that i've been constantly seeking since i mean or maybe i've always sought it out you know this this idea of like um of living in a collective um way that's meaningful to everyone and sharing and creating something together. I lived in a very interesting area in Wisconsin called the Driftless Region, uh, which is an area where kind of people came from all over the U.S. to to um, to come back to living on the land and to um, homestead and live in a different way. And, um, and at the same time, so, you know, really rural life and very in a very practical, hands-on, down-to-earth way. But at the same time, um, 
there are people from who are very cosmopolitan and very diverse and very artistic and there are lots of uh, so I mean I think I'm always looking for this combination of um of living closer living living in nature living um on the land in some way but also in a community of people who who are aware of the world I mean it's it's a it's a tricky balance like this to live very locally and to really plan you know to grow roots and to to find a a a spot in the world that you can um try to make your home and to feed and be fed by and at the same time be aware of of the whole rest of of the world like and how 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 can we be aware of the rest of the world i mean that's also a question for me because i feel the way that the news is reported now creates so much fear and so, such a sense of powerlessness because it's so overwhelming so general so huge and we don't even know where to begin you know it just it just it is it always feels like the world is coming to an end when you read the news like and that's not something that you want to be faced with on a on a daily basis and and it doesn't help to create something to plant something to mm. to to do what you can and what we really can. I think there's so much that we can do this is something i felt so immensely in on lesbos for example when i was there in 2015 2016 i was volunteering at moria the, the infamous i was going to say famous but infamous um moria which burnt down a couple of years ago as you probably the the refugee the refugee camp, camp. Yeah, yeah. yeah it was which was the biggest refugee camp in europe and um and it was a place where, of course, there was Im- enormous suffering and that was um, beyond heartbreaking. It was like body splitting, like I, 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 I can't I really even, I can't yet uh, express how, yeah, but, but apart, f- I mean, yes, there was that, of course, but there was also the sense that there was so much you could do on a daily basis just by being there. Which, which is so interesting to be in a situation mm. where you can give so much and you can really um, really make a... Di- well, it's, it's such a cliche now, right? Make a difference, but it really... You could it, really... It, yeah, it sounds a little bit like what you're saying is that uh, you can not only make a difference, but you could sort of almost feel and measure out the way in which you are, in a very practical sense, making a difference. Yeah. You can feel your own power basically as yeah, a, as one yeah. person and especially as one person coming together with other people, you know, mm. and that we are so capable of that and we have immense capacities to to give and share and, and change our each other's lives. I felt that so, so viscerally there. And I think that that's why I went there in a way, because I wanted to know it beyond the news. Mm-hmm. I wanted to and and and. I think the experience with the uprising really taught me how completely distorted like to be in a situation which was I mean there was one moment where I was actually during the the very beginning of the uprising in Egypt where I was actually looking out of my wind you know the window of the place where I was in downtown Cairo and I saw like a battle right outside you know there was a this enormous battle between people and police like right underneath the building and then I would turn and look at the television screen which was behind me and it was broadcasting the exact same scene 
because there was an Al Jazeera television crew in the next, uh, you know, apartment, yeah, uh, yeah. you know, filming from the exact same perspective. And it's, and to be part of an quote unquote event like that, and then to go home and watch it on the news or see it filtered through, even through, when I was in places like, of course, there are moments of, of, of incredible horror and fear, but there were also, but very often everywhere you are, there is this, these pockets of normality, you know, mm-hmm. no matter how intense of a situation you're in, like, um, I think I've written about this as well, like this, this idea that, you know, you're in this, um, Tahrir Square, for example, in a square where you, you know, this enormous thing is happening, but just a couple of streets away, there's a woman hanging up her laundry, someone is shopping for shoes, there is someone who's mm. like, you know, people sitting at the coffee shop, smoking a shisha, like, and yeah, that's something yeah. that is never reported on the news, you'd never know, you just hear, there's a bombing, and da da da, and there's like this, and so many people are killed, and there's that, that fire which has consumed, but you don't realize that in the midst of war, in the midst of disaster, in the midst of everything, life goes on. And the the idea of, I think the news is so distancing. It makes mm. us feel like there's something happening all the way over there to people who are like so different from us and poor them, you know. Mm. But when you are really inside, you realize that, and that's something I think that personal narrative and, and, you know, personal stories can do in a way that news can never do is that you realize that it's life mm, mm. and that those people are you, <laughs> you know, and yeah. very much like you and that everything keeps happening. And that in the, ref, you know, refugee camp, I, I hate the word refugee and that there's these like teenage girls giggling and like about the whatever. And there's this te- like, you know, there's just Everything is still happening and life is still, life is life, you know, life is just, uh, you know, the, is the undercurrent of everything. I mean, uh, I think I've yeah. felt a, a yeah. similar thing mm. recently when I've been watching coverage about what has been happening in Ukraine. Yeah. Because I was in Ukraine, t- what, 12 years ago or so. Um, and it's a very sort of disconcerting thing to look at a place where you know that you've stood mm. but see it having been bombed or destroyed or having floods of people running through it or something like that mm. and kind of suddenly having to sort of learn a new reality about mm. that place Um or sort of, yeah, having to come to terms with a new reality about that place. And it, I know that it it really kind of, um, I don't know, it is part of what has been making the last few months kind of feel so utterly, crazily insane in trying to figure out what is happening in Ukraine mm. is partly because, yeah, I've I've been there, I've walked those streets you know and Mm. it's it's a very simple connection to have in a way to be able to say like oh well because i've been there i i whatever i i have a different understanding of it or something like that but Mm. um yeah i suppose ultimately what i'm saying is that yeah it does end up making it feel different Mm. yeah definitely although it wasn't the case that i was uh watching it on tv while it was also happening outside the window Mm. (laughs) which sounds like a, a pretty weird thing to be dealing with 
I mean, it was very interesting to see how even in those those days, you know, when you're in the streets, you're just living, and then you, you know, for me for, personally, when I went home and read about it, again, as I said, like even on account, like the most reliable accounts, I would get really scared of going out again. Mm. Mm. Just because it, you know, and then as soon as I was out in the street again, it's normal, you know, it's not... Of course, it's not normal, but but yeah, but yeah. it's amazing how quickly we normalize things and how quickly we adapt and how, which is interesting in, in our repatterning conversation, <laughs> how quickly we adapt and how quickly we make everything we 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 um, integrate, you know, new information and new new world, you know, new parameters into our life, and and we we just keep keep on rolling somehow. Um, I read uh, what you were just saying that reminded me that you that I was reading an account of uh, of someone in Kiev who's who went to an uh the opening of a friend's arts exhibition, you know? Uh, and I, I was just really surprised by that. I was like, "Really? While well, the bombing was and then, you know, this was a at the beginning actually. But of course, again, you know, even I was confronted with my own assumptions about it that it was just uh nothing but you know, but of course, there's always so much nuance in in, mm. in life and in in every in every single day of our lives that we that doesn't stop and never will. You know, um, yeah, yeah. Um, and um, some of the things that I really uh, like, some films and some books and so on that I find really interesting are are ones where there is this um, this story, these characters, and then there is this very particular for example, political situation or crisis situation or war, but it's not foregrounded. And there's just this kind of like mm-hmm. very, like sometimes very insidious, very sin, like could be very sinister. It could be just very, I mean, for me, it's more powerful when it's in the background mm. uh, or in, not in the background, because of course it defines our lives, especially when it's that uh, stark, you know, it, it, of course it changes everything. Um, but mm. But yeah, I, I, yeah, I find it more interesting in a way when that's in the background. And what the other thing I was going to say is that um, there is definitely this reportage about a particular family, a particular person in the news. But for me, it very often there's this hierarchy and there's this sense of superiority of like, oh, those poor people, look what happened to them. They lost their home today. This family reporting from da da da, you know. But I think that there's also different ways where that stories are told from a perspective where you realize that this person is me. This person is just like me and I could also lose my home and I could Mm. also have everything turned upside down. Just because I think I'm living in a place that's privileged doesn't mean that I'm actually apart from or you know immune to uh to massive uh upheaval as we've all experienced during this pandemic you know mm. um we were think we were talking about a lot of different things and uh and i really love how you challenged our idea of repatterning by saying that you didn't say it exactly uh like that but you in implied that you've been repatterning your whole life and uh, <laughs> mm. um, so maybe I would try to twist it mm. one more time and see if you can think of if uh, if you have been through a lot of times when you had to readjust how 
would you think of readjustment within that? Mm. Yeah, I guess at one point I mentioned that for me, the pandemic, I had a very particular experience of it. And I, I don't, again, I want to, the disclaimer of I don't want to, um, you know, belittle the, the amount of suffering and, and so on. For me personally, it didn't, I feel like it didn't come as such a surprise. And it didn't feel like such a big change. <laughs> and I was almost surprised that people felt like it was such an enormous change because, but maybe, it, of course, not, not maybe, of course it has to do with the fact that there has been a lot of change in my own life. Um, and um, and uh, different times of upheaval and also kind of self-inflicted uh, or self-chosen um, uh, up, you know, change and upheaval and uprooting. Uh, I mean, I've been sort of for the past 18 years, I've been in motion, I would say, like uh, staying in places sometimes for a bit longer and uh, sometimes for as long as a few weeks and just or a few days and moving on. And I've lived in a lot of different places. Um, in like I've lived for a longer time in seven countries and for shorter times in many, many others. And in quite a you know a few continents and yeah so I I I I would say that hmm I mean I'm always it's for me it's very interesting how also certain cultures are more oh this is a very tricky <laughs> statement <laughs> but. I think that there are certain places in the world where people are more used to this constant change and unpredictability and precarity. And it's very interesting that because there is no real safety net, uh, there is no necessarily like a government that's very um, stable or reliable or trustworthy or, well, is there ever a trustworthy government? But anyway, um, yeah, I... So, so people are always making do and making ends meet and, 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 and improvising and creating and knowing that you never know what's going to happen. And that's so built into the culture. Like I love this Arabic uh, word. Well, I don't want to go into this uh, cliche, but, um, but like, for example, the, the word inshallah in Arabic and in Egypt, for example, is, is always used to end almost any statement about the future sometimes even a statement about the present and it just means if god wills it you know it's not a religious statement it's just a it's just a phrase that people use to mean we have no fucking clue what's gonna happen in the next minute you know like sometimes yeah. you're about to get dropped off in a taxi and and uh you know and it's like you know you're 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 flat you've already you know you're already here you know mm -hmm. and he's like here and he stops the car and you say inshallah you know it's like, <laughs> like all you have to do is open the fucking door and get out but in that moment you could still get run over anything could happen something could fall from the sky you mm. never fucking know and this is like the this is the the it's so deeply ingrained in 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 certain places i think that um life is full of twists and turns and and we're not in control and control is an illusion <laughs> and we always have to see what's going to happen and play it by ear um, and create our reality day by day. Um, I mean, my even my mother says, like, you know, about something 
you know, where where in Germany, for instance, I think like, well, pre-pandemic times, it's very interesting. It was always interesting for me to see how people can plan their holidays months and sometimes a whole year in advance. I'm like, what? And and my, my mother, for example, often says things like, you know, uh, like referring to something that's going to happen next week. She's like, if we're still alive by then. <laughs> Not in a, not in a, like a, not in a dark way, way. Yeah, like yeah. A, or a, yeah, but just in a, you know, like, uh, I don't know, we it's just, just so everyday, yeah. like we never know. And, <clears throat> and I think that security is an illusion. And I think security has always been an illusion and that we, we truly don't know. And I think that's something that's so interesting about the pandemic is that even in places where people were living, you know, under this illusion that they could control things and that we can plan things so far in advance and that life is very stable and steady and like just a train on its tracks going in that direction and we know it and we can see it. No, <laughs> the train can be derailed at any moment and that's interesting. <laughs> I mean, that creates a lot of difficulty and sometimes an immense amount of suffering but it also creates a lot of new possibilities, as you mentioned at the beginning, and and windows into what else could be. How else can we live our life? What is missing? What are we hungry for? What are we? What do we still want to reach for? You know, and what can we do together to to get there? I think that's a great uh, final word, and. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I always find it really inspiring, our conversations. <laughs> Me <I>. too. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Um, yeah, thank you. Thank and, you. Uh, more to... So that was the conversation that we had with WM, but before we sign off, there's an additional extra. We asked WM if she might like to read any of her recent writing, and she proposed to read a new short text about the Shavasana Club. The Shavasana Club is a group that meets once a week on Zoom in order to undertake Shavasana together. This is the period of relaxation and meditation that occurs at the end of a sequence of yoga, so these people are meeting weekly on Zoom in order to lie down together and do nothing else. Our thanks again to WM and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. So we were talking about the um, all these online events that are happening and uh, the Zoom parties, as you called them, Tom. And um, and I thought of this uh, very short micro piece that I wrote um, just a few days ago, actually, um, which is about this group that gets together on Monday evenings on Zoom to lie down. That's all. That's all. Just lying down. And actually, um, they call themselves the Shavasana Club. And it's totally absurd. I mean, it's amazing that we have to meet on Zoom from different countries just to lie down on the ground in our own homes um, for 25 minutes. But um, I actually experienced it once and it was super beautiful as well. It was just uh, a really much needed break in the middle of the day, a moment to let everything drop mm -hmm. for a moment and to just be 
just rest and I feel like we don't uh, we don't do that enough so um, yeah I would uh, love to read you this little piece called the Shavasana Club every Monday we gather every Monday evening we gather on zoom we come from all over the world and on Monday we gather we gather to lie down that's what we do Every Monday at 6 p.m., we gather to lie down together on the ground. That's all we do. We lie down. We let our bones down. We take our bones off the hook, our bodies off the hook. We let the weight of our head fall slowly to the ground. Like an hourglass without hours, we let our body pool on the ground. It takes time. It takes time for it to acquiesce, to relinquish, to relent. We let it lie. We let our upright head fall, our upright life. We give it up for a while. We feel our shoulder blades on the ground like resting wings the heaviness of our pelvis, like a rolling clock, now still, or falling into stillness. It's a long fall. <laughs> 